but putting a bullet into another human being is an unnatural act. And that's just not a situation you want to escalate. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. I'm your host, Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. You guys may notice that Jim is once again on assignment, writing, producing, directing, doing something Hollywood at the moment. So I am here interviewing someone very special. I'm really excited to bring you guys another story from... Ryan Phillips. Ryan Phillips. Here we are back again with former SWAT commander, current security head at Pinewood Studios in Atlanta. So guys, I'm on assignment again in my favorite place in the world, my home state of Georgia. California's great. LA's wonderful. The weather is fantastic, but nothing beats home. Absolutely right. And nothing beats a Southern accent. So I love when we get to interview someone from my own home state with a Southern accent, which Ryan, you have one. I try to deliver whatever you ask. (laughs) You totally do. So last time you talked to us about something really exciting, a raid that you went on, when you were a SWAT commander that ended up with no one dead, no one shot, whether it was the people whose house you hit or your team. And so that was definitely a best case. I don't want a spoiler. I don't want you to tell me what kind of case this is. But for those people who may have not heard Ryan's last tale, Ryan was a veteran police officer. He was a police officer for 18 years here in Georgia in Fayette County, which is just south of Atlanta, really is a bedroom community. And it now heads security for Pinewood Studios, which is a big studio system, I would call it. It's a huge campus down here just below the city of Atlanta. And he talked to us about one of his SWAT missions. So you said last time you were about a nine-year veteran during the case that you talked to us about. Where in your career were you with this current case we're going to talk about? I was a... 10-year veteran, actually. So you had the experience of this previous SWAT mission. Yes. You learned your lessons. Correct. Did you still have the guy who was six foot 10 on your team? Still had that guy. Can't go anywhere without him. No, because I want him in the door before me. Yes, (laughs) That's for sure. I would hide behind him every time. So 10-year veteran, you're on the SWAT. What happens? At this time, we had actually just got back from Birmingham, Alabama, where we were serving a felony warrant. Suspect was in custody. We we're on the way back. Drop the suspect off at her jail, and an officer puts out that he's on a traffic stop and needs a unit for backup 
because he smells marijuana come from the car and he's going to conduct a vehicle search. Well, that doesn't sound like a job for SWAT, although I will say, and I'm sure our listeners know this, traffic stops, I think, statistically speaking, are the most dangerous actions police take in the sense of that's when they're most at risk. And as we are sitting here recording this episode, one of our Georgia law enforcement officers was murdered just a couple of days ago in Gwinnett County, just north of Atlanta, responding to a call about a suspicious vehicle. Yes. And he was shot. Um, There were several suspects taken into custody after a manhunt. One suspect was killed after, yes. a, I think the manhunt was at least 24 hours, it right? Was, yes, it, Friday, it occurred Friday afternoon, I believe, that happened on Sunday. So yeah, so, I mean, it was a, a very serious time, and we certainly want to pay tribute to that fallen officer who I think had only been on the force about three years. Yes, correct. So such a tragedy, a young officer, a suspicious vehicle. We know those things are dangerous. So you've got an officer calling for backup for a marijuana stop. So what do you guys do? What Are you kitted out? What do you have? I, at this point, I'm, I'm in a standard, what we call brown and tan. You know, the deputy uniform with the, the tan shirt, brown mm-hmm. pants. Right. Um, and honestly, my shift was over at 11 p.m. And this was just after 10 p.m. So I'm actually chatting with another deputy after dropping off. I was a sergeant at the time dropping off the suspect at the jail, and we're just making small talk when the call for help went out. So you're not kitted out. You're not in a SWAT vehicle. You don't have bulletproof vests on. Well, maybe you have a vest. I've got got the small under vest and my my standard duty belt. Standard duty belt. And that means what kind of weapon are you carrying? I've got my SIG 40 caliber handgun on. I've got handcuffs, aspatine, pepper spray, the standard, what you see a patrol officer have in there and their loadout. Okay. And, and you're just at the, are you at the jail? I am. I'm, I'm in the jail parking lot after dropping the suspect off. Okay. So you get a call. Officer needs assistance. Mm-hmm. So what I, happened? I head that way. And you know, it's funny when you talk about statistically on the stops and things is I hate when officers say, oh, it's a, it's a low risk, low risk traffic stop. It should be unknown risk. You have no idea what you're going into. And this will be a prime example of that. I go to back up the officer and as I pull up, the officer has the driver out of the vehicle and he's talking to him. Well, so where, where, like, what kind of spot is this? A city, this rural is, road? This where? is in the county. This is a, it's actually referred to as County Line Road. It is a pretty rural road. I mean, there's houses off of it, but these are houses where the lot the house is built on is a couple of acres or more. So you have a lot of open land. It's late at night, not a lot of lighting on the road. So it's, a, you know, a very rural area. There's not a lot of traffic. Well, and we heard from your last episode that you're trained as a SWAT uh, officer. So you know how to breach, you know about dangerous situations, you know how to defend yourself. I'm sure you've taken a lot of courses and training on personal combat, all that sort of thing. But are you by yourself in your patrol vehicle? It just, it's just or me. a vehicle? Yes, it's just me pulling up in my vehicle. And upon arrival, I see the other deputy has this, the driver out of the vehicle. He's talking to him. I get out of my vehicle, come up. There's also a passenger in the vehicle on the passenger seat front. So you got four people. No, two people. Two people in the car. One. I mean, four total. Sorry, I meant four total. Yes, there's two deputies, two unknown subjects, if you will, and then two cars, a rural road, and it's nighttime. Correct. And then the stench of marijuana hits me as soon as I get out of the vehicle. And that's a that's a smell that you don't forget. And that, you know, as a police officer, certainly probably in your early career, you trained on smelling it Correct. so that if you do traffic stops, you know what you're smelling. Craig, you went through a state certification course for identification, whether it be smell or what they call a controlled burn and actually testing of it to test for it to be positive. Right. So upon, I, I smell it upon my approach. 
my partner's patting down the driver to see if he has any weapons. You know, it asked him if he had any weapons, and he's doing a consent pat down on him or a terry pat. As you so he's outside the vehicle this he's time. He's out of the vehicle at this point, against the vehicle while the other deputy conducts the pat down. And where's the passenger? Do you know anything about that when no, you pull I, up? I know nothing at that time except I'm going to cover. You know, I'm, I always say whether it be in law enforcement or in SWAT, there's two things in this business that kill you. Hands are the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other ones are angles, putting yourself at bad angles in a house where a suspect can get a surprise on you. But if I can see hands, then I can identify if you have a weapon or not, at the very least in your immediate grasp. Well, and if you think about any kind of rural road, so you would imagine there's the car and then the deputy's car behind it. Correct. And then your car behind that. Yes. So you pull over off the road a little bit. Yes. So certainly as you're getting out of your car, you can probably see almost nothing. Uh, exactly. That's until correct. you go a little closer. Right. So do you approach on the passenger side or do you approach... Mm-hmm. On the driver's side. I do. Side. I approach on the passenger side with a flashlight I had out in my hand to try to illuminate as much of the area as I could. Um, when I approach the passenger side, the passenger's sitting there, asked if I could see his hands. He's being cooperative at this point. I heard the other deputy say, hey, don't put your hands in your pocket to the driver who he's patting down. Who he's patting down. Yes. So what's so interesting about this, I think, is that I've never been in that situation. I've never been a law enforcement officer, so I don't know what that's like. When you pull up, you know the statistics. You know that police officers are in danger in this sort of circumstance. Is your heart pounding? Is your adrenaline pumping? Are you trying to focus on multiple things at once? What's going through your head? You know, a little bit of all of that. France, I can tell you on the approach, I, I want to see hands, but I'm also worried about how the other officer is doing. You know, all these things are hitting you. I can't really see anything. What's going to happen? You know, and, and in the back of your mind, you think, is this going to be that time? Is this where someone that is going to somehow challenge me or try to hurt me? You know, you think that almost every time. Of course. You know, that I think if you play your cards right, I think that keeps you sharp. Well, and I recently saw a video uh, that was broadcast. It may have been in the middle of a trial. I can't remember the context I saw it in, but it was a dash cam of a patrol vehicle somewhere. Right. And the person was out of the car. And then all of a sudden, I think it might have been the person inside the car, but somebody starts shooting at the police officer that's just standing at the traffic stop outside the car. That officer was struck. I think he survived, but he's struck and then he pulls his weapon. He's trying to shoot back and take cover all at the same time. And so one of the biggest lessons to me here is that if I get pulled over by a police officer, I'm doing absolutely every single thing they tell me to do the second they tell me to do it. Because- It's not that I'm going to do anything to the police officer, but the officer has got to be worried about what I might do. They don't know me. They know other police officers who've been shot in those situations. So your adrenaline's up, your blood is pumping, your hand is close to your weapon, and you have to be worried about your own personal safety. And I don't want a cop to encounter me and have him be worried about his own personal safety. I want to make sure he knows I'm no threat. Right, correct. And, you know, and I tell people, because I, I actually, it's a question I get all the time. What if the officer I feels doing wrong or being overly aggressive or maybe right. showing too much force or in, the, in their demands or commands to me? You always say, you know, cooperate when all of it's over with. If you want to go talk to their supervisor or someone beyond that, that's the time to do that. Right. File a complaint, exactly. but don't decline or refuse right. commands from an officer who is, you know, making a traffic stop right. and right. who must have a reason for asking. Right. Or even if, And even if you think they're wrong, right. even if you think they shouldn't have pulled you over or they have no right to do whatever it is they're doing, that's an armed police officer yes. with a history of understanding that their life is in danger right now. Right, right. And that's just not a situation you want to escalate. Exactly. exactly. And yet people escalate it. And I don't understand that. Now, 
Of course, I do understand it when you've got criminals who don't want to go to jail. They want to escalate it. Absolutely. But that's what the officer is prepared for is that escalation. So right. you really want to de-escalate it. Correct. And by the way, for everybody listening, um, we are at Pinewood Studios. It's a working place. You yes. may be hearing doors closing and such. And I'm sorry about the noise, but we're definitely not in a soundproof booth. But we wanted to get Ryan on on the podcast. So my apologies if you guys are hearing that stuff. We'll try to cut out as much of it as we can. Okay. So Ryan, back to the action. You pull up your adrenaline, you have to be thinking at least, you're a SWAT trained, so you have to be looking at things like angles and hands. You hear the other officer say, don't put your hands in your pocket. Correct. That's not a good sign. It's not. It lets me know something's going on. There's something that he wants to get, the suspect wants to get his hands on to present to the officer, whether it be a weapon or maybe he's trying to destroy some evidence, but something's not going 100% right at this moment. Well, and if he's pat, if the officer's patting him down, the officer does not have his gun out. Correct. So it's on his hip. Correct. Now, this is a small thing I know, but I've always been sort of curious about this. You see a lot of holsters, different kinds of holsters that police officers wear. Some of them have a snap. It seems like some of them don't. What was the sort of standard for you all at the time? At that point, that holster was considered what we call a level three holster. That means it's going to take three actions for me to get that weapon out of its holster. A security holster, basically, where a suspect just can't come and pull my gun out. Mm -hmm. It's going to require special movements and a special direction to get it out of there. I mean, it's not like your quick draw McGraw. It's going to take an extra little second, depending on how much the officer has practiced on that, and also how they're going to react under stress. Which, of course, no one knows really how they're going to react under stress, right. which is where training comes exactly. in. And that's why, especially like, for example, in the military, they get trained over and over and over again to do the same thing. So it almost becomes muscle memory exactly. versus actual brain activity Correct. telling you to take cover or stop, drop, and roll or whatever it yes. is that yes. you have to do to save your own life. Correct. So the officer is not going to be able to get his gun out very quickly, probably, right. but he has one on his hip. Correct. He's patting someone down. You hear him say, don't put your hands in your pockets. Yes. What happens next? The, as soon as I hear that naturally, that's a red flag going off for me. So I have a flashlight in my hand and I know he's patting him down. So even it, it's funny how you rationalize things so quick. And I said, he's patting him down. His flashlight's probably tucked under his arm or he may not have one and maybe can't see what's going on. So my first reaction is to look away from the suspect on the passenger side for a second and give him illumination and say, are you okay? Well, I was just going to ask because if your attention now is drawn to the other side of the car, you're on the other side of the car and you're looking at the passenger who does have his hands where you can see him, but now your attention is drawn to the other side of the car. So you're no longer looking. You can't look at the passenger that's right in front of you. Right. Right. Okay. He says, I'm okay. He goes, everything's good. So when I go to divert or to bring my attention back to the pastor, I now notice he is climbing over the console into the driver's seat. Oh, that seems like a bad move. Very bad. So I start giving him verbal commands. Stop. Let me see your hands. His hands are now thrust under the driver's seat, <gasps> both hands reaching down as far as possible. I open the passenger's door and I dive in the car. And here's what a lot of people go. Wow. You know, if you thought he had a gun, did you just dive in on top of him? All I can think about is the other deputy has no idea what's going on. And if he turns with a gun, the deputies may not have a chance for survival. And I know he's got four kids. That's the first thing that went through my mind. Also, side note, my oldest daughter, this is her ninth birthday, this exact day that this is happening. I dive in after him because if there's a gun, I'm going to get my hands to, to stop him.
Jim, I know you and I share this problem. We both travel and we can't get to the grocery store. We are both eating out way too much. Mm. That's why we've decided to try Home Chef for quick and easy meals. Home Chef offered 16 different delicious meal options each week, from steak to chicken to seafood to vegetarian, which you can mix and match. And once you join, it's as simple as selecting your meals and customizing your delivery dates. The box will arrive at your doorstep each week with recipe cards and fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients. Then, voila, you have a home-cooked meal in about 30 minutes. The problem is, Francie. As much as I like to cook, I don't have time for cooking, and I really need it to be simple. Well, and you're not alone in that, Jim. Just the other day, my husband, and I'm not even kidding, made his very first meal for me from Home Chef. He's never ever? cooked. Really? Yes, ever. He's oh never God. cooked a meal for himself. <laughs> You've been married for years. <laughs> I know. And we tried the teriyaki chicken, and then he was so excited that he wanted to try the beef chimichangas, and they were delicious. Well, for our listeners, you can go to homechef.com slash best case for $30 off your first order. That's homechef.com slash best case for $30 off your first order. Homechef.com slash best case. Homechef.com slash best case. Well, so let's go back. We talked a little bit about something like this in your previous case. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot on the news about police officers when suspects make suspicious moves, they shoot first. Right. And on this podcast, uh, to the anger of some who listen, I often defend police officers because I've never been in that situation. But intellectually, I understand that deadly force can seem necessary in a risky situation where you've got someone who's not listening to your verbal commands, is diving over a console and reaching underneath a seat where, as a former prosecutor, I've seen lots of cases and handled some myself, where suspects had weapons and holsters, actually, right Right. there under the seat, which is illegal. That's an illegally concealed weapon in Georgia, even. But still, have holsters under there, shotguns under there, all kinds of things right under the driver's seat that, especially in the dark, you can't see. And so... If this story at this moment was saying to me that you then pulled out your weapon, shot and killed that person, I would say that you were justified. Now, would a court find you justified later? That's a whole nother question. And people might get angry at me saying this, but it seems to me that what you don't know right then may kill you or that deputy. And yet you're thinking, you're reasoning, you're making decisions that are different from that. How do you arrive at a decision to dive instead of shoot? You know, my biggest thing I was thinking at the time is, first of all, I don't know what he's going for. Is he trying to get rid of some illegal drugs? You know, the thing is, in my philosophy is if I can't see it, I can't shoot it. So I wanted to see exactly what I was dealing with. I knew my best course of action at the time was just to try to control his hands. I dive in the car. I grab for his hands. I'm hit with an elbow. As I'm struck with this elbow, I drop my flashlight because I immediately went into a defensive mode and put a hand up for defense, I dropped my main flashlight, I realized I can't see anything. I then just automatically training realized, now my SIG-226 has a flashlight attached to the weapon. So I draw my weapon and immediately turn my flashlight on. All while you're struggling with this guy in the car? One thing I haven't realized at that very moment is not only at that time when I lost my flashlight, had he started the car, I see that he's now put the car into gear. And he's got it into drive. I'm hanging on to the passenger seat. My head is at about the center console level and the car is starting to move. So your legs are sort of my hanging legs out. Are dangling. Yeah. So the, my thought process at the time, it's funny how a few seconds can seem like hours in your head. I'm telling myself, straighten your legs so they don't get pulled under the car. 
And I'm telling them, and it's funny when I went back to listen to it, I can tell that my training paid off greatly because I'm saying, don't do it. Stop the car, stop the car. Almost in as calm of a voice as I'm now just, I'm not, because of all the stress-induced training I've mm-hmm. received, I wasn't, you know, losing my mind with too much stress. So you got body mic on. Yeah, actually, the officer behind me, the camera in his vehicle, his body pack was on, and the exterior mic's so strong, it's still picking up our conversation. So all this is being recorded. It is. It's getting, everything's getting on tape. We're getting audio and video. You know, we had a, an officer, a friend of mine, Joanne Sutherland, who was a Clayton County Deputy Sheriff for a long time on, and she was talking about a particular case that she had where when they rolled up on a vague call of child in distress, they see a child who's been brutally beaten on the porch of a house. She's tied up with duct tape. It's a horrific, it's horrific injuries. And she talked about how time slowed down. Yes. And she couldn't really hear anything. It's like that auditory issue that Jim yes. has talked about on many episodes that it's a known phenomenon. I think it maybe it's the blood rushing in your in your yes, through your ears. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. can't you can't really hear anything, right. which is interesting. You you talk to officers after there's been a shooting and they don't know how many shots were fired. And juries later say, how could you not know how many shots were fired? We heard it all on the camera, but that's not what's happening to the officers who are in the middle of it. But she talked about time slowing down. And so that like all her other senses besides her ears went into sort of hyper focus, whereas her ears just completely shut down. And so it sounds like you at least were having that hyper focus because you were thinking, don't let your legs get dragged under, pull my gun to turn on my flashlight. And all this must have happened within just a couple of seconds. It's within seconds. You know, and it's funny because what you said, it it just hits the nail on the head from actually going through that. It's like everything's in slow motion. I'm like, well, I'm thinking about this, this and this within just seconds. And then when I watched the traffic stop video, I was like, it felt like I blinked and it was over. You know, how did all that happen so quick? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's not the same thing at all. And I'm not equating the two things, but it's similar. It's my experience as a prosecutor. So I never wrote out closing arguments. Uh, I would have bullet points that I wanted to address, but then I would just talk. You know, that was I felt like that was the best way that I knew to do closing arguments. I just wasn't a practicer of closing arguments. And part of that was because as a state prosecutor, you went right from evidence into closing arguments. There was no time to practice or prepare. You just had to get up and start talking the second the case was closed. Right. And I would, there were most cases when I would sit down after and I would not remember most of what I said because my adrenaline was so high because I felt so much pressure to be convincing the jury, persuading the jury, advocating the case that I was full of adrenaline. I would sit down and immediately get a a rush headache because I was so intently focused during that closing argument that I would get that focus headache when I sat down and never, almost never remember exactly what I said and would only know what I said later when I read the transcript of my own closing arguments. And I would think to myself, oh, I said that? I sound like an idiot. Or, oh, I said that? That's pretty good, you know? But it's similar. Again, it's not danger. But I understand that adrenaline spike. And it's something I want our listeners who sit on juries to know that when police officers testify about these emergent situations, they expect, just like they expect victims, to have instant and complete recall of every detail. Right. It's almost impossible. Now, you're trained differently than certainly the victims are, so we expect you to have different recall. Right. But I find it interesting that you say that through your training, the stress response training, yes. you can handle things differently. You know, and I encourage all law enforcement that's listening to this is 
you have to challenge yourself in the arena of stress inoculation. You have to have stressful training. Everyone's heard of simunition, simunition of the little the paint bullets. You know, I'll have officers that when we start shooting the paint bullets, they have on the protective mask and they're completely fogged up because they're stress breathing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is, you know, you're, you're freaking out about a paint bullet, but I'll watch you run into that house after a bad guy that has real bullets. Right. You know, there, there's a disconnect there. Right. And I'm like, you know, you, you need to take the training serious and learn the lessons there. That way you don't bleed as much on the street. So to, to take that into consideration to get as much of that training as possible. Yeah, as a prosecutor, I didn't get that training. Right, exactly. Yeah, different, different ballgame. Yeah, I think it was definitely something I could right. have used, though, maybe. Right, sure. I maybe would have had better recall. Okay, so you are... The guy has put the car in gear. Yes. Your legs are hanging out of it. The, the deputy who I would imagine at this point, you can't really see because you're struggling with the right. driver. Right. So who knows what he's doing or what danger he's in from a moving car. Right. What what happens next? We know and at that point, I, didn't, I still didn't know if the suspect that the other deputy was dealing with had a weapon or not. You know, there's a lot of unknowns at this point. Right. So I know the vehicle's moving and I'm asking him to stop, stop, please stop. And he won't do it. So I realize I'm getting pulled by this car. So I extend my weapon. I realized I had to push my handgun across the top of the seat because that's still about the only traction I have to stay in the car. Mm-hmm. So I pushed across and I fire twice. And I, they fire both go into his side, into his pelvis area. And um, I knew I'd hit him. And then I fall out of the car. I hit my head on the street and I'm unconscious. <gasps> Brian. And my, my... I can't believe you got off any shots in that circumstance. It just, it was, like I said, it was so weird because it felt like it was, you know, this chronological thought process was going through my head what was actually just a matter of seconds. So you fall out and now you're unconscious. I hit my head on the street and I would literally wake up and my arms are outstretched on the street and I've got my weapon in my hand. And I come to a few seconds later and I see the blurry vision of taillights peeling tires down the street. And I'm thinking to myself, have I been run over? Am I dead? I really don't know where I'm at at this point. And I hear the, everybody knows the sound of Charlie Brown's teacher, the Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. That's the other deputy talking to me. Mm -hmm. And I can't put together what's happening yet. Mm -hmm. And I sit up and I'm looking at my handgun and you have to do what's called decock. You put it and it cocks the hammer forward to make it in a safe condition to holster again. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking, I'm telling myself, decock and holster. And I decock and holster Again, your training comes right into play. It does. It kicks right in. And I tell him, I was like, I, I know I shot him. I shot him. And I'm on the side of the road. And my head, I can't explain. You know, it's it's killing me. Um, so I see the deputies take off from the scene to go after him. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting on ambulance to show up. I'm waiting on all these things. And at that very moment, all these emotions are hitting me. It's my daughter's birthday. I just shot someone. Am I going to be okay? You know, I think a lot of people don't realize you can be a SWAT guy. You can be in law enforcement and grizzled for so many years, but putting a bullet into another human being is an unnatural act. And when you are forced to do that, there's a lot of self-reflection that takes place there. Mm-hmm. You think, I know I did the right thing. Or, you know, whatever your religious belief, am I going to be okay there? You know, there's so many things you go through. Is it going to make me weird around my family? So you're laying in the street after this horrific encounter. The guy is clearly uh, doesn't care if you're dead or alive. Right. And you're thinking about whether you did the right thing. Yes. Wow. I can't believe you're already thinking about whether you did the right thing. You know, and it's one of those things. It's like, wow, was everybody going to see what I saw? Will everybody get my version of the story? The ambulance shows up. And actually, the first guy to get out of the ambulance is one of my SWAT medics. And he goes, are you okay? Are you okay? I was like, my head's killing me. They give me the ambulance. And I have just, the now the adrenaline's starting to wear off a little bit. So now I've got to throw up. 
Oh. And, you know, they're handing me a bedpan and I'm dry heaving. I'm like, this is the craziest thing ever. They get me to the hospital. That sounds like a bad head injury. It was, it was something. I'm covered in dirt. It's in my face. It's, you know, in my eye. They're transporting me there. And they get me there and they end up having to give me a shot of morphine. They're like, we've got to calm you down and we don't, we, we've got to do a CAT scan. We don't know what's going on with you yet. So, you know, I get the shot and it calms me down. And they go through the whole process. And finally, you know, I'm getting discharged six, seven hours later. I'm having people come to visit me and I feel like, am I on my deathbed? You know, right. everyone's come to see me and then you're dealing with, here comes internal affairs. You know, here comes all these other people that are saying, you know, hey, we just want to make sure you're okay. Or, we, or you know, we don't want to ask you any questions now. Uh, we just want to make sure you're good. You know, so then you're still thinking, wow, now I've got to go through. Here comes the whole legal process for me where I'm basically giving my testimony to the GBI. You know, these are, you know, that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Yes. So they're, they're going to send an investigator to talk to me. I'm going to talk to our detectives. I'm going to do all this to make sure everyone knows exactly what happened. So at this point, when you're in the hospital and you're, you know, they're doing x-rays and seeing if you've got closed head injuries and all that. Do you have any idea what's happened to the driver you shot? They still haven't made contact with him yet. Wait, still haven't made contact with this. is such police speak. I love it. Yes. So that means he's still on the loose. He's still on the loose. They finally found him hours later at his home to which he got home and called his neighbor across the way in a neighboring county. He actually fled to Clayton County. Wait, you shot him twice in that very close range, maybe just point blank yes. range. Uh-huh. And he drove to his house. Jumped defense. fence. A six-foot fence to get to the house going through the woods through the back way with bullets through his pelvis with a crushed pelvis. Oh, my God. I was, uh, the, he must have been high on something. The anatomy of getting away <laughs> is, is something up sometimes wow. with a bad guy. Okay, so, so all you know, though, at the, when you're at the hospital is he hadn't been found yet. That's, yeah, exactly. And you're dealing with all the crazy stuff that happens after an officer-involved shooting. Correct. Correct. What happens next? I get word that they've located him. He went home, and when they actually went in the house, he was stuffing bath towels, trying to stuff it in the holes to stop the bleeding. You've got to be kidding me. Nope. He, he wasn't going to call 911 naturally. A neighbor sees him and he calls the neighbor and says, hey, the police shot me. This and that. The neighbors even said he's usually always drunk. So it, I figured he was drunk calling, talking nonsense. But the neighbor happened to see patrol cars circling, you know, driving down the street over and over again. So the neighbor approached him and said, hey, he's, he called me and said this. He's in the house. Sure enough, it was him. And they made contact with him. When they got him in the ambulance, I heard he he coded. He basically died, and they brought him back. Really? And he had him under a 24-hour law enforcement watch at the hospital where he was getting treated. Wow. Did you shoot him twice? Twice. Two rounds went through the same hole. Wow. So they went in and took different directions in his body after shooting. So, you know, and the funny thing is, is I get home, and, you know, all these thoughts hit you. I woke up screaming. He's got a gun. I was saying all these things waking up because, mm-hmm. you know, your mind's trying to rationalize. You're processing like. everything. But what you said about audio preclusion is exactly correct. When mm-hmm. I shot it, it sounded like those little snapping pops kids play with. Mm-hmm. Hey, I can barely hear a thing. Mm-hmm. So all that was prevalent. So so you get out of the hospital and what, what like, does this case go to trial? What it happens does. I, So I'm home on paid administrative leave, mm-hmm. just pending the investigation. Naturally, I get a call from the district attorney. The next day says, hey, I've seen everything. I saw the video. Good to go. You know, you can go back to work. It's a good shooting. It was mm-hmm. a good shoot. And so, uh, you know, they still wanted me because of my concussion. I had a concussion, so they wanted me to make sure I was medically cleared. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that was the longest week at home I could ever explain to I you. Bet. I was ready to get back to work because you, you become a monster of your own thoughts. Well, because all you were thinking about was the shooting and then the, right. and the incident and right. falling out of the car. Right. And- right. 
So I get back to work and, you know, we're getting back to business as usual. Then I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to think about this for a while. And then here comes trial. Uh-oh. We know we're coming to the trial. So we get ready. I meet with the ADAs and the DAs. So I'm guessing, as a former state prosecutor myself, I'm guessing, at least I hope, the DA's office threw the book at the guy um, because he injured an officer. He ran from the law. So there's going to be obstruction, maybe a, some sort of escape charges, certainly assault charges, aggravated assault charges, using a car. Yes, to injure an officer, which is what he did when he failed to obey your commands, certainly aggravated assault, possibly an attempted murder. I don't know what were there all those charges part of it. They were. They went with felony obstructions. They went with aggravated assault on a peace officer, which is a mandatory ten year sentence. Mm-hmm. They threw all these charges, which I was extremely happy with because that's what needed to happen. He recovers from the hospital and, and you know he spends time with us in jail. He bonds out several months later. Wait, 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 wait. He got bond. He got bond. He bonded out. He runs from a police officer, yes. flees the scene, doesn't call 911 on him to get himself help because he's so anti whatever he is. Correct. And the judge let him out? He, get, he bonds out. This is several months later. And I was actually on the way out of town to a vacation in the mountains when my the sheriff at the time called me, said, hey, I just want to give you a victim notification and let you know he's bonding out of jail. So talk about ruining your vacation because now all of that, what went to the back burner to the stove mm-hmm. is now right in the forefront front. of my brain. So now I'm, I can't I'm believe any judge let that guy. There's no, I know he didn't kill anybody, but he could have. Right. He didn't right. care if he did. No. And that vehicle was a weapon. Correct. And I just cannot believe that a judge let him out. All right. Sorry. No, I'm no, off no. my soapbox now, but that makes me angry. Well, now we go to trial. So now I'm first in there and we're talking about how I felt. And I will tell people this. If you're ever serving on a jury trial, and you have law enforcement that comes to testify, we're all not hard cases. We're going to get emotional sometimes. Of course. I will tell you, I could, when I thought about my daughter's birthday and what I was going through, and, and when I told the story of him dragging me in the car, I can't help it. I, I'm, I'm getting choked up. I, I got to catch my breath. Right. It's a very, you know, it's a terrifying experience. Well, of course, because you remember it. It's and, like re-traumatizing right, yourself every any, time. And for anyone to say, oh, you signed up for it, you're getting law enforcement, I signed up to protect and serve. Absolutely. You didn't sign up to get run over by a car. Exactly. So that that's going to take a, a little bit of self-reflection that gets you through, wow, that happened to me. I'm going to be okay. I can use this in a positive light. But reliving that in the courtroom was very stressful, you know, and telling the jurors exactly what happened. You know, and a lot of law enforcement officers realize that when you're in the courtroom, it is a game of chess. Oh, sure. You know, and you can't, yeah, you know, ego and emotion, those two things get you in more trouble than anything. Mm-hmm. So you got to realize that it's not personal, it's business. So that defense attorney's trying to make me look bad. That's what he wants to do. And so I'm sitting there listening to him say thing about it, say, oh, he's a SWAT guy. He, you know, he wanted to kill Michael. Yeah, he's blaming you. Yeah. It's all your fault. The whole thing's your fault. He told me that he goes, you're mad that he's not dead, aren't you? You know, all these things. And I'm like, I'm sitting here getting personally attacked. I'm like, I, I shot him to stop the threat. I wanted his force against me to stop. That's why I shot. I didn't want to kill him. I just wanted to stop what he was doing against me. So we went through that back and forth. Long story short, we ended up having a hung jury. Seriously? We had a hung jury. I was accused How of, can anybody vote not to convict someone of that? It was, it, it, you know, and, and the district attorney even showed the video of the traffic stop and said, I don't even need to say anything. Just watch this video. And it, it, we ended up having a hung jury. So I was like, what do, what do we do now? So we end up having a retrial. I will tell you, the judge in the case came forward and said, you know what? I feel like I'm not qualified enough to hear this case. 
I'm going to call in another judge from Atlanta from the circuit to, to hear this case the second time, which made me feel like that's not good. It doesn't seem good. It didn't seem good. Well, then, you know, I, my point, I'm wanting the assistant district attorney is hearing this case. I'm thinking they're saying all these things about me. He's a murderer. He's a this. I'm like, is there an objection anywhere in here? Right. You know, we've talked about it. Help me out a little. I feel like I was kind of an island on the stand. Mm-hmm. So when we go back for the retry and the defense attorney heard that another judge was coming in to hear the case, they wanted to plea. So unfortunately, you know, as well as me, that to the court, a plea is a win. Well, it is a win. And, and after a hung jury, the odds of a conviction actually go down, not up. Right. And prosecutors know that. But you're talking about an injured police officer. You know, we don't, I think a lot, maybe a lot of police officers wouldn't agree with me on this, but I consider prosecutors to be far part of that thin blue line. Yes. And we're a team. Correct. And we have to look out for each other. Yes. You know, if I'm in trouble, I expect you to come and get me. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. when you're in trouble, I expect to be there for you. Exactly. That's how it works to me. Um, but I understand the thought about taking a plea, worried about losing and getting something out of it. But the question is, what kind of plea? So what happened? Well, when it comes back the second time around, I was going on a vacation to Disney around when this was actually happened. So they asked me if I would video record a statement. Mm-hmm. for the court. Just mm-hmm. basically kind of my testimony from just like a victim impact that. statement exactly. almost. Yeah. So I did that. Even the victim's advocate was in there with me. Mm-hmm. So we went through it and I read the statement for the court. They said, Hey, we're going to take a plea on this guy, you know, and all that. Just let me know. And you know, my first thought process is, do I have a say in this? Mm-hmm. You know, well, he ends up getting a plea for felony obstruction from attempted murder to felony obstruction, which is felony for those of you out like there, zero to five. Yeah. Felony obstructions. Like if you come up and try to grab my taser or grab my gun or, you know, or struggle me. when you're putting handcuffs right. on, well, that's not trying to run you over with a car. Exactly. So they took the plea for felony obstruction. And I want to say he served maybe 18 months. Oh, that's pathetic. And Ryan. He's, he's already back out. So, you know, it's one of those things where you look at, you know, and the thing is after that happened, I wanted to nurture, the relationship with the district attorney's office, you know, for all of us to say, Hey, how do we get better at this? How do we spend more time together? How do we build that trust with each other? So it was a very, it's a very nerve wracking case, I think for everyone involved, Mm -hmm. you know, and even the retrial and the plea and all that, I definitely, you know, wasn't happy with the outcome of the case. You know, in Georgia, there's uh, I think it's an instruction to the jury uh, about a particular kind of murder, something that you commit with a depraved heart. And it's always something that I think jurors struggle to understand. What does that mean, a depraved heart? But it sounds to me like this guy had a depraved heart. He did not care whether he was going to run you over, the other deputy, or even the other guy that was in the car. He was just going to do what he needed to do to get away. And to me, that suggests someone with a depraved heart who's not done. He's not done with his criminal behavior. Exactly. He'll be back. And that's my point, too. You know, we started here. Where does he go next time? To commit the act that he did where he, you know, he didn't care if I lived or died. You know, in my mind, he wanted to kill me. So when he got that little slap on the wrist and he's back out, what's going to stop him from doing that again? Well, that's not deterrence. Not as I look at it. Exactly. I agree with you completely. That's unfortunate. So I have to ask you our question, our most famous question. Is this a best case or a worst case? That's absolutely worst case. Yeah. Worst case. That's the one that has stuck with me since it's happened. And it's one of those I don't think you ever really, you you really shake because of the outcome of the entire thing, Mm -hmm. you know, because it wasn't this five second instant was horrible. You know, we're stretching it into over a year 
you know, mm-hmm. so it's just that continued stress level of, you know, I can't eat, I can't sleep because of all this is replaying in my head over and over again. It, it, you know, it takes time, time to get over something like that. Well, and I would think too, Ryan, that just, you know, living in the same community, there's every possibility. And I always look for defendants right, right. <laughs> because I've prosecuted in a, in a large area when I was a federal prosecutor in Northern District of Georgia is a huge swath. And I'm always on the hunt for when I'm ever at the grocery store, when I'm out shopping. I always feel like my head's a little bit on a swivel because I'm looking right. for defendants or defendants' families who are actually almost always worse than defendants right. Right. because they're the ones who are super angry you prosecuted their loved one. Yes. So far, knock on wood, I have yet to encounter and uh, have any bad encounters with anybody. But I would think that would at least somewhere in the back of your mind worry you a little. Like, where is he and what's he doing? You know, and it's funny you say that because Unfortunately, I have ran into several people I've arrested over the years, mm-hmm. and they come up and say, hey, do you remember me? Automatically, no, that means I've arrested you. Yeah, of course. Um, but with this particular guy, I go on you know, the Georgia Department of Corrections website where mm-hmm. you, you know, it shows inmate photos and things such as that. Yep. I have to refresh myself on his photo every now and then just in case I see him again. Yeah. You know, Because it, it may be a dare, hey, there's the guy that you went through that with. Go up there and just say hey to him. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be prepared in case you perceive me. I just want to see this guy from a mile away. Now, may he walk right past me one day and I never know it? Yeah. Maybe. But I want to give myself that little bit of an edge just in case because I know he'll never forget me and I'll never forget him on the flip side of that as well. Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I've had several offenders that I thought were psychopaths and that I thought were, well, of course, I'm prosecuted murderers. They're still in prison. But the most dangerous people I ever prosecuted, I do. I go to the Georgia Department of Corrections website frequently and just look to make sure they're still in prison. Yes. Because as a prosecutor, I'm not getting notification. Right. And I'm certainly not even a prosecutor anymore. But even when I was, I wasn't getting notification. They were right. getting out. Right. So I, I do the same thing. I understand that. I think it's something that people don't think about, that law enforcement, you're never really out. I mean, I haven't been, I left the Department of Justice in 2012 and I left being a state prosecutor in 2002. So, but you still don't ever really leave. You know, you never forget those experiences and you don't forget that camaraderie, the mentality that you had when you were in law enforcement and the, and the risk that you took, um, especially when you're in a smaller community of running into people that you prosecuted or arrested that are bad. Yes. Yes. You know, and that's something you live with forever. Absolutely. You know, and that's one big thing, too, because, you know, we always know it, we're a family. Mm-hmm. You know, we always have that camaraderie no matter what. You run each other. There's just always that little extra warmth that seems to be there just because yeah. you, you do it together, whether you're a prosecutor, whether you're from the court side or the, the street side. Right. All that, you're right. It, it, we're all one big family. And you're never really out of it. I've been still blessed to where I still get to, you know, be active part time Mm -hmm. and still go out and teach what and teach, you know, uh, ground fighting and all these other things that keeps me. It still keeps me sharp because the thing is, is the arrest and the the shootings, that that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. I might see that person. So it's still I've I've still got to be versed just in case. Right. So you're right. The head on swivel. I don't think that will ever stop me sitting my, you know, never have my back to the door. That'll never stop. You Mm -hmm. know, all those little things. So it's just part of our our psyche. It's ingrained in us. I think when you have a long career in law enforcement, that's just part of the part of the deal. I know Jim feels that way. Yes. Um, Well, Ryan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you telling us about your worst case. I I understand why it's your worst case, but I'm glad you're okay. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Uh, And uh, for all our listeners, thank you for listening. That's all we have this time. Join us next time on Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. 
Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba and hosted by Wondering. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. Thank you.